Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Fitness Podcast. Thank you so much for everyone who has listened. It's been amazing. We had Brian O'Hocknessat on last week, who is a nutritionist, and the feedback was amazing. The amount of shares and follows that I myself got, and the amount of comments that came through on my social media was quite amazing. So thank you so much for listening and for sharing those. So this week is a little bit of a fangirl moment for myself. It's with uh, Danny Lennon of Sigma Nutrition. Danny is the founder of Sigma Nutrition. He is known for hosting one of the top-ranked podcasts, Sigma Nutrition Radio, which I know a lot of kind of the followers listening to. Uh, Danny is also a respected educator in the field and has spoken at conferences all and events all over the world. And he's currently in Australia, sunning himself over there. Danny oversees the Sigma Nutrition online coaching service and has worked as a nutrition practitioner with a wide variety of clients. But he is well known, most well known for his performance nutritionist to professional mixed martial arts and boxers. In my, in my eyes, this guy um, is knows his stuff and I'm honoured to have him on. So thank you so much for taking the time out, Danny, for coming on. Oh, no problem at all, man. Thank you uh, for the kind intro and I'm happy to come and talk about this stuff. Awesome. Um, so Danny, for those guys who may not be in kind of the, the fitness industry or this industry, or the health and nutrition industry, would you kind of take, would you kind of talk about yourself a little bit more, your story and how you kind of got into the industry as a whole? Sure. Uh, I think probably the, the main things uh, for people that people might want to know about um, from an academic standpoint, my undergraduate degree was in biology and physics. Um, I actually from there graduated and was actually teaching uh, physics and biology uh, at a secondary school for a year. Uh, before going back and doing my master's in nutritional sciences. Um, so I did my master's on UCC. Uh, from that point, um, started Sigma Nutrition, some nutrition coaching consultancy, putting together content that was informative and tried to center around us. And what probably became most well known for, as you mentioned, was the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio. Um, so on one side of the business, I suppose, there's that uh, media uh, and educational content, podcasts and articles, uh, seminars and conferences, stuff like that. And the other side being our uh, coaching service, where uh, there are three other coaches that uh, work at Sigma uh, for me that uh, take care of all our online clients. Um, and so over the years, we've had quite a vast array of different people that we've been able to actually take what we're looking at in research and try and put into practice um and so that's the 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 suppose the rundown that most people want to know about um in terms of how i got into that i'd say a, a way a lot of people do um just was very trip perspective for or trend more played a lot of sport growing up um and then during my time in in college when I started learning about how to uh, read research and read scientific papers then I would say oh I wonder if there's anything I can read that helped me in training um, at the time I was playing a lot of Gaelic football um, and obviously going to the gym to try and help with that and so stumbled across research related to nutrition and uh, the thing that grabbed me more than anything else related to performance and just like started reading a ton of it was doing that almost just my own time. And so then I was like, hey, I think I'll just go and do this full time. Uh, so I ended up quitting teaching and going back to do my master's and 
the rest is history, I guess, as they say. But uh, mm-hmm. that's the kind of brief overview, but I'm happy to talk about anything specific. Uh, that that's awesome. Now, I know the one of the kind of the topics that I'm kind of looking to talk about today with yourself is after one of the ep- listening to one of the episodes with yourself and Stuart Taylor regarding habits and stuff like that. But one of the I did a like a small Q and A up on social media, and a few of the questions came in. So I have Q and A at the end. But one of the questions that kind of came through was from a few new PTs and people, because everyone's out there now on social media trying to pick up new little points, and there's so much information out there. It's kind of information overload, and it's very difficult for people to kind of go through the information and pick out what's relevant to them or see what's true and see what's not. If someone isn't kind of new to the fitness and nutrition industry or general Joe Blogs is looking to kind of get a little bit more information, what sources of information like books or podcasts would you recommend to those guys? So if people are just looking for one resource that I think that if they read through that and were able to apply it, if their goal is mainly looking at this from uh, changing body composition, which often it is if someone's in the fitness industry, pretty much 90% plus their clients are coming them with their initial goal at least the position. Um, and to try and get away from all the distraction that I put at all these different types of habits out there or specific training modalities and getting bogged down in that. Instead of t- looking at the overview principles, I think a, probably a good place to start would be uh, the pair of books that are uh, were authored by Eric Hans. So they're called Muscle and Strength Pyramids. So there's one book for training, one book for nutrition. Um, they're both around body composition specifically. They will give the kind of principles of both training and nutrition that influence. It takes care of a lot of the needless traps we can fall into. And certainly when I think back to uh, before, we're maybe sucked into that weren't so backed by evidence. Uh, it's because trying to look at specific methods or types of diets. Is this the best way to go? That's really the worst question to be asking. So that would be a result I would mention to people. Um, other than that, if someone's actually a fitness professional and wants to go a bit deeper, then obviously get things like just standard textbooks around uh, things like exercise physiology and other areas uh, like that. Uh, which can find texts on. And then if you want to keep up to date with research, but perhaps um, don't know how to interpret that or aren't comfortable reading research, or there's just too much to parse out, then research reviews can be helpful from that perspective too. So if they're more into strength training, there's one called uh, Mass or Monthly Application to the Strength Sport I recommend to people. Um, and then on the nutrition side, examine.com do one. Um, you have James Krieger does a research review, Weightology. Um, Alan Aragon's research has been, review has been around for a long time. Um, so there's a lot of different areas where they can go to there. Uh, actually on the, probably an easiest way that could point people to is on the Sigma Nutrition website, I've actually got a resources tab that you can click in the menu and it's basically just recommendation from different places around the web that I recommend different content to. That includes research reviews, courses, books, things like that. So people might want to check that out. Um, yeah, just sigmanutrition.com and there's a resources section there. That's perfect. Uh, but they'd be the places to get started. Um, yeah. 
That's perfect. No, I'll definitely put that into the. On, I'll put that link onto the when I when I release the the episode. I know I have the Eric Helms Muscle and Strength volumes as well. They are phenomenal. They aren't overly complicated. So for anyone that hasn't got too much information or too much of a background in the whole industry or doesn't want to get over bogged down in te- technical terms and stuff like that the eric helms ones are are spot on they're, they're very good and they're not overly expensive i think they're 50 or 60 dollars so they're not too expensive and they're decent sized volumes as well um if yeah and they've just been updated yeah exactly yeah that, so. yeah and that's the most recently updated one that was only a 50 or 60 dollars and they're decent sized chunks as well when you kind of print them out or go through them so that they are they're they're quite thorough and they're very good at kind of especially the training one it kind of breaks down on how you should kind of program yourself if you're not going to a pt or a coach kind of breaks down how you should um do your workouts and stuff like that which is which it seems to be a quite um a, a key thing at the minute which is awesome. So I'm glad you recommended Eric Helms. Uh, makes me feel a little bit uh, better that I'm going to the right sources. Um, if someone if someone comes to you looking for advice on their nutrition, what would you say is the most important thing that you need to look at with that person? For me personally, it's kind of actually getting to know the person and show that you actually have a human side as a coach, but also say that you also have the ability to kind of wrap your hand or put your arm around their shoulder if they do need it. What would, what would be your kind of interpretation of that? Yeah, I think off the back of that, and I think probably what we'll talk about throughout this discussion is that when it comes to actually coaching someone, I think what a lot of coaches will realize pretty early that they might not have realized when they were first getting into the field is that most often when it comes to coaching someone on nutrition, for example, only a small percentage of that is about the actual nutrition intervention or recommendations you're giving as in like the specific food choices they're making or what their calories are going to be that's only a part of it the same way that showing them how to do a certain exercise is only one small part of your actual coaching process so there's a difference between people who can prescribe someone macros or prescribe them a meal plan or give them a train program that's one element but that's not actually coaching that's more programming i would say so on the coaching i think you're spot on there's that human element to it in terms of where is the most fundamental place to start or what to do the way i i think the best way to get into this is taking stock of what the person is currently doing seeing what their nutrition look like right now look at what their goals actually are and then seeing where there is kind of discordance between those two things. So what are they currently doing that is not conducive to where they actually want to go or what they need to do to get there? And then start working through, okay, well, what are the first few things we can change? What are the big kind of picture stuff that we can start trying to work on that nudges them in the direction of what they would need to do to get to their particular goal? Um, so that's that will differ dramatically for each person depending on what that goal is, where they're starting and what their nutrition actually looks like right now. So what is their diet? And also looking at what is the reason for the discordance between those things. So we could look at two people who maybe have are starting off with a poor diet that's not going to get them towards the, the, the result they're looking for. They might have the same result that they're aiming for. The reason why they're not eating the way that you would need them to could be for two different reasons. For one person, it could be 
they just don't know, right? They have no knowledge around nutrition. They have to learn some of the basics. We have to help educate them, show them what types of meals that are the uh, best way to start and really start from an educational perspective. Other people you'll come across actually may know a lot of this stuff. They might even be fitness professionals themselves. And for other reasons, just haven't been sticking to that, doing that. And so there's other behaviors that are not following through. And so looking at, yeah, where is that discordance between what they need to be doing, what they're doing now? Why is that the case? Then putting in place some interventions that we think may work. And then from that point, it's kind of assessing as we go along, making tweaks and changes. And that is essentially what the coaching process is looking at how can we solve these problems and there's no one answer all the time it'll be different for each person but that's uh not my attempt to kind of answer that question no I, I that's the biggest thing that i've learned anyway from being in the industry is that not one person is the same and some people react different ways to different kind of macronutrients. Some people will just feel be able to kind of train a little bit better in the morning. Some will be able to train a little bit better in the evenings. Some people will be able to understand a certain cue or a certain uh, certain fact about a certain food or something like that. And then there's others that may be be going through social media and be looking at various different sources for their information and have so much information and just not know how to actually apply it and then there's the other person who literally doesn't know what a calorie is so it's i'm delighted that you kind of mentioned that no person is the same i think that's the biggest thing that it kind of i've learned anyway so i'm delighted you brought that up um one of the things that kind of happens a lot uh particularly when i went i did a cut back in for november last year for a photo shoot and one of the things i struggled with was motivation so motivation and diet can fluctuate a lot how do you manage this with your clients i know each client kind of varies and stuff like that which we've kind of said already but how how would you kind of manage this with your clients yeah so i think the biggest thing is first having the awareness that motivation will drop off. You can't keep motivation high, no matter how many things that are motivational that you put around yourself, no matter how of a motivated person you may think yourself to be. uh, Everyone is gonna experience dips in motivation uh, regularly. And so it's an unreliable way to base your diet. So you can take, like you look at anyone that competes in something like bodybuilding, they are super motivated. They have a, a very goal and focus. They know exactly what they need to do. And even though they essentially love to support the bodybuilding, they will even experience dips during dieting phases. So everyone else is going to experience the same. So the way around that is to try and build in as many processes, habits, and behaviors that don't rely on willpower or motivation as their biggest factor. So how can we set up your lifestyle that you can follow through on certain behaviors we need to do certain actions, even when you're motivational? And that's a tricky thing to do, but that, and that's when people have a routine, when they have a clarity of what they need to be doing, when they look at a, that kind of big reason for why they're trying to make these changes in the first place. and when they can essentially have that automated as much as possible, that even when they don't really 
have that motivation is high, there's like, okay, I know what I need to do. I just need to push myself through it. If I just do get it done this meal or just get stay, even though I don't want to do it. And then suddenly they come out the other side and they're okay. So there's nothing wrong with having high motivation. In fact, you can probably use that to your advantage. And particularly when someone is simply in a dieting phase or they're new to uh, training or they're, they're at the start of a certain journey. When motivation is high, you can kind of capitalize on that. Maybe do things a bit more aggressively than you would before. You can give them more things to change or you can try and push things a bit faster um, because you know motivation is higher and going to be sustainable. So it, again, it, without a lack of here's what everyone must do, it's trying to find okay what things are not going to be reliant on needing to be motivated all the time. Um, and this is where a lot of the literature around change and habits might come in. So um, that can relate to, okay, knowing what times are going to, uh, what meals are going to have and reducing any of the obstacles that may get in their way. So, um, and it, it's interesting how even small numbers when your motivation is low can be enough. So you might have intention of getting up tomorrow and going for a run. And if you get up and your motivation is low, you're going to be subconsciously looking for reading that, right? So you might tell yourself, oh, it's uh, it's raining now. Like, I, I, I don't want to go out. I'll, the weather's too bad. I'll just do it tomorrow. Or you may say, oh, I'm actually running a bit behind. And if I go out for a run now, maybe I'll be a bit late for work. And you know, it's just made up excuses. All these things that we can subconsciously do when we have motivation low. So trying to reduce those barriers. You could have your... Uh, clothes ready to go you get up and you say okay i'm just going to get out and do five minutes and that's all i need to do and then suddenly when people do that after the five minutes it's very rarely they're going to stop they're going to stay continue doing that run. that's just one example there's a million things we can walk through here more related to nutrition juice uh, the need for motivation to do something um so if you have meals already prepared for example and that can serve as a useful backup for times when you're not motivated. If you have had a long day at work, you're super tired, and you've just gotten an argument with someone, you come home, and you're, you just want to uh, just lie down on the couch. Right? If you go and make a dinner, and you have to start from scratch with all these ingredients you're in your fridge, it's going to take you an hour to cook that, chop everything up. That might be enough to stop you eating a meal that you wanted to do or would have otherwise done because it's so easy to grab some convenient food that's right beside it. You just grab it and go lie down on the couch. If you have a meal that's already been prepared as like a backup meal, then that might be the thing that allows you to stick to this process without needing the motivation to go do it. So there's a, that would be the way I would sum up and without me going into more tangents about more examples, I think that hopefully gives the idea of how can we build in a process that we follow no matter what. That's what everything is about. This is a process. This is what I do. And just say to yourself, like, this is what I do now. Uh, and that there's other areas we can get into, but I'll, I'll leave it there for the moment.
I, I love that idea of even kind of getting when you if, you if you've got home because so many people are on the go now they have their their job there's no such thing as a nine to five job but when people come home back to their families or they're looking for any excuse not to train if it's if it's raining or whatever or else they just don't, don't want to go to the gym and even the simple process of starting to cut up the veg is kind of a, a, a almost a mental win so i love that analogy that you're going to you're just creating your so-called healthy meal or you're staying on track with your with your diet if you are on a diet so I, I, that's a great analogy. So that's awesome. I think that's a great cue. I'm definitely going to steal that and bring that to my clients. So thank you so much for that one. Um, one of the one of the big things that is kind of a big debate at the moment is kind of the tracking the calories. There's people that are kind of like that are against kind of the tracking calories and people that are for tracking calories. What are your views on tracking calories for someone starting out on their journey that has never never tracked a calorie before or doesn't even know what a calorie is what would be your kind of your views on that sure so this kind of fits nicely into the uh sort of a mantra or the main kind of philosophy that i talk about most of the time when it comes to diet and i kind of alluded to it a bit earlier that pretty much everything we should be looking at what are the principles behind what we should be doing as opposed to worrying about the methods there are a million different types of methods or we can think of that as tools or types of diets or strategies but they all are going to work for the same set of core principles so with diet if we're looking to change someone's body composition for example we know that we need to modify their caloric intake make sure they're getting adequate protein. Probably most of the food intake should be from minimally processed foods. Um, make sure we can those things. Sorry, Danny, can you say it's that? Like a handful can you, of things. Sorry, Danny, can you say that again? The, the, the phone went off, again, the connection went off again. Would you be able, mind saying that again, please? And then in addition to that, uh, micronutrients and fiber and things like those. So there's a small handful of things that we actually need to do addictive of methods or strategies or tools that you can do to set that up and so um with that if we know that there's these kind of set core uh, principles to adhere to we can realize that something like tracking calories is just one particular type of tool or strategy and I think a lot of the arguments are kind of needless when you think of it as, okay, this is one type of tool that we can use times with certain people in a certain context. And so this question you asked is more about, okay, context is, is that correct? Or is that suitable for someone who never tracked before, uh, new to this, who is just getting started? Is it suitable to use that particular tool? Uh, again, it depends on the type of person. For a lot of people, it can be very useful. Uh, a lot of our coaching clients, even for a short period of time initially, we may do some degree of tracking to certain different degrees, and I can explain that in a moment. But we will get them to essentially start uh, maybe wet portions of food, log that into an app like my fitness pal or other, what their calorie able to see my nutrient intake is. I think doing that even a period of a couple of weeks for people can be really eye-opening to show them exactly what is in the meal that we're typically eating uh, getting them to start to tune into what it is and what a meal that of 500 calories looks like 
a meal that they might have thought was very low calorie actually could be, oh, wow, I didn't realize it. Um, it can get them to realize maybe how many uh, times they were snacking per day, that it could have been a lot more than they were suddenly now more aware of what they're doing. So the initial act of tracking can be useful just for creating awareness, uh, but two, it also shows them things about their dietary habits. Um, so even if you weren't using it to actually prescribe them calorie or macronutrient targets, if you just got them to log their own feed, that act can be quite useful. Um, and I think the cool thing about tracking that short, relatively short period of time, let's say someone does it for a few weeks or a month, you even if you switch to no longer tracking your food ever again, you'll probably retain most of the benefits that you got. Like, particularly in people who track for long enough, uh, once you've done that and you've tracked so often, you can never go back to the place you were before you knew what tracking was, right? Or before you ever start to see what was in food. You can now just eat without ever tracking, but kind of be fairly sure of like the portion size got of roughly what might be in that of knowing okay this meal probably has more than 30 grams of protein which i'm aiming for and you can never go back to a place of having no idea what what's in these foods so the benefits sustain uh, long term um and i think then the decision becomes of okay uh, for this person is it a good fit for longer than that initial period or not um some people really enjoy data-driven. Some people like having control over it like that. For some people, it induces stress and anxiety to weigh food and log food all the time. Um, and so for some people, it's not worth it. And then there's other strategies we can use. There's lots of ways to set up an intervention where we can reduce someone's calories, if that's the goal, without them actually having had to count them. And, and so there's, yeah, there's so many tools to use. Um, one that we use quite frequently with people, if they're just getting started with this, is kind of a, a partial tracking system. So they may their food intake and look at what their calories are. They may have a minimum protein target to be above, but we don't really care whether carbohydrate or fat intake falls because for most average people, that doesn't really matter too much. And so that's a nice, nice introductory way in. Um, other people that I would, I would probably point to that maybe tracking isn't suited for is if you're working with someone who's become very, very hyper-focused on it, who's like trying to track stuff with them unnecessarily, who maybe has patterns of disordered eating at certain times, that can be uh, contraindicated. And I think people who have a history of that, something like tracking meticulously on that can be actually counterproductive. Um, and detrimental, so we'd kind of stay away from it there. Um, so there are certain cases that aren't going to suit people like that. There's lots of people that just don't want to do it. It doesn't suit them. It's too much hassle, so we wouldn't use it there either. But if it, we suspect it may be useful for someone, then I've no problem using it for a certain period of time. Um, and, but beyond that, I do think that the long-term goal should be to get away from it. I think there's no need for someone to do this forever. I think, like I said, you get enough benefits once you've done it enough that you should be able to move to not needing it, um, especially in a, a long-term sustainable sense. Maybe if you're dieting for, let's say, someone's doing a bomb show, sure, you're going to need to use tracking uh, in the vast majority of cases. Um, 
but I think most people's aim should be to be able to move away from this and let go of needing that to feel that in control. And then they'll probably see actually, you know what, we can actually eat fine uh, without tracking and I still do pretty okay. I like, so there's I, a lot in there. So there's a lot in there, but like there's, there. there's the, the little gem that I took out of that is that if someone is kind of maybe a little bit hesitant about tracking uh, and the fact that you're just kind of making them aware of what's actually going into their body. And I know a lot of people say if you put in, so say if you put a sandwich, a picture of a sandwich up on Instagram and you kind of said, is this sandwich less than 500 calories or is the sandwich more than 500 calories? Most people would, obviously depends what's in the sandwich, but they'd obviously, more than likely, they'd probably go for the lower option when the, probably the sandwich is probably about 800 calories. Most people tend to kind of underestimate when they are actually looking at calories. So it's a really useful tool to kind of get your head around of how much is actually going into their body. Like people would be surprised that if they go on a night out and they kind of get like a Domino's or something afterwards, that that's probably going to be about 11, 1200 calories. And you're kind of, you're going then into your trainer and kind of saying, oh, I can't eat 1700 calories when you've just eaten 1200 calories in one sitting on a Sunday night. So like it's, it's, it's right. sometimes the mind boggles of some of the answers that some people kind of tend to give. Have you used kind of the food diaries and stuff like that with some of your clients or how do you find the food diary? Um, as a tool itself yeah so we've used lots of different things like i say some people don't want to track with an app and that's totally cool so some people might prefer to take a food diary again from a perspective if someone has not been doing anything if you use a tool that gets people to record what they're eating you usually see at least initially that they've given any recommendations leads to people's reduction intake that's one of the kind of big confounders actually with research if you give them something that they're now aware of what they're doing that actually is eat less than they otherwise would so it's hard to get an idea of their normal habitual intake but food diaries can be useful beyond that because you kind of see what their typical patterns are um the big issue is uh that it can be um, misleading when it looks at someone's food diary because it's hard for some people to judge the actual portion size they include, right? So if they put down, yeah, I had a chicken salad for lunch, oh, there's a whole host of things that that could be, like what exactly is in there? How much dressing did you use? What was the size of it? Um, what type of uh, other stuff like cheese was added in? And so you can get wildly different things that it's trying to get people to be precise with that can be a bit of an issue. But like I said, if it's just trying to get an idea of what their normal intake looks like i think food diaries can be useful uh i've actually worked with a particular client where she was always in uh, like this would not candidate for trying to track stuff at all would be super um anxious about looking at what she was consuming got really locked in on looking at calories and so instead what we were using was a model where she would just keep actually a written food diary she used to have a little notebook she preferred that even to write it into her phone and you sort of just write down that across the day and we wouldn't even necessarily try and aim for a specific number of, of calories and macronutrients but we kind of knew what types of meals we would get her to a certain amount of protein across the day and we're just allowing her to be mindful of what she was consuming making sure she wasn't having way too many snacks or having like uh meals that would regularly put her over where we should be and that alone was enough in terms of tracking for her so 
food diaries can be super useful. You can now it's so easy to marry that up with essentially pictures of people being able to record their meals, which kind of allows you to, as a coach, to objectively assess what the portion size is. So I really like the idea. And I know, um, I'm sure it's very easy to get someone, hey, when you just before I'm about to eat your meal, just take a picture of it and send it to me, send it to my WhatsApp or put it into a group, whatever. And now you can see when they're reporting their food diary, okay, if what exactly the portions that they are putting in. And so if they're not progressing, then you can kind of say, see this meal that you sent, awesome, really good food in there. But see the portion size of rice you have on that plate, let's kind of reduce that down. Maybe we'll cut that in half. Let's add in maybe a bit more vegetables to fill you up a bit. Uh, but there you're making a food-based modification. You're not talking anything about calories, but you're going to be changing their calories carbohydrate without them even need to worrying about grams of this or numbers of calories. And so there's always ways to, to look at things outside of one particular method. And uh, it's why when it comes to the coaching process, that my favorite phrase to summarize what coaching is actually was a phrase that Mike Tushero told me. Coaching is essentially creative problem solving. And it's the one that I've tried to tell coaches over and over. That when you understand the principles of what you're trying to achieve, when you actually work with an individual, no one right way, but it's up to you to see what are their problems right now and how do we come up with some solutions and be creative. In, and it might take you trying a few different things and maybe thinking a bit outside the box, but it's trying to fix what is their particular problem. Um, so there are some examples where you can use these other methods to try and get to the same goal of them eating an appropriate amount of yeah, raw it, food. It literally, using different methods. Yeah, it literally is just kind of changing habits. And I think a lot of people kind of can get too bogged down in the whole process of counting calories. So I think the whole, especially with kind of new starters or new people that are kind of new to kind of try to kind of making better decisions or have never even stepped into a gym or never even kind of had so-called healthy food. I think the photo options is awesome. The fact that they're just kind of reassuring themselves almost that they are going the right way. Um, so I, that, I, that, that's awesome yeah. to like you said particularly if they're kind of making I try to get them to even kind of on a Sunday make maybe their dinner on a Sunday and have leftovers on a Saturday or on a Monday maybe and I just kind of know that they're going the right way on the Sunday that makes that's an extra win for the Monday so it's a good start to the week for them so I think, that, I think that's awesome right. and what would be kind of yeah, your I think then also, sorry to cut you off but I, I think even things like that of, of taking photos of meals can work secondary as a like a behavior modification tool. So if you think of the likelihood of someone making good food choices, if they know they're taking a photo of that and sending it to their coach, that automatically has to influence their food choices across the day. So if they do that enough times, then suddenly now you're ingraining a habit, and it's just enough of a reminder to get to follow through on processes so instead of thinking about the outcome of what's my weight going to be now they think about the process of okay what's my next meal going to be and I have to take a picture of this um, and so th there's always things like that will tie back to how you keep people uh, sustaining certain behaviors and that's the that's the problem with if someone only learns how to track and describe macronutrients and no habits built and no um, education around food or actually putting together um, a lifestyle and set of behaviors that are going to be conducive long term, then as soon as they stop tracking or stop planning, because all they've been able to do is force themselves through willpower 
or for a number of weeks to stick to a certain number of macronutrients, but they haven't actually improved their food quality at all. They haven't ingrained any set behaviors around food. And now if they don't track, they're screwed. So I think there's a there's there's two sides that you need to take into account of doing both of those things at the same time. I, I think that I think that's awesome. And I know one of the things that's kind of coming up a lot recently is that people in the not that I'm old, but a lot of the people in the they're going to the gym nowadays seem to be younger and younger they used to, like back when i was in school and stuff like that you only kind of the the kind of the senior rugby team would have been the guys in the gym but now it seems that everyone seems to be going into it and kind of trying to build up and stuff like that is there kind of an age limit that you would say to someone that is looking to track particularly for females uh with kind of my fitness pal or is there kind of is there an age limit that you would stay yeah, this, this even ties into even beyond tracking into simply the act of kind of dieting. Um, and like you say, I think for a, a number of reasons we can probably think of a combination of social media, societal pressure, um, all those types of things that factor into putting these external uh, pressures on young people. Um, I think probably, like you say, females are probably negatively affected by that. And I think there's actually statistics that show that. Um, that a lot of it leads to uh, poor body image, uh, low self-esteem, or trying to make changes coming from the wrong place, from doing it from a place of fear or negativity about themselves, or comparison to others. And there's no real easy answers to that because there's so many other things that are influencing that. And I, I think even getting people to try and realize that what they look at on Instagram isn't real. Like it's like none like you could take the, the most fake stuff of sure. Some people are like putting up Photoshop stuff, but even like a step down from that, most people are picking their best photo of ten that they took and putting a filter on it in the best lighting. And then beyond that there's people that you're looking at in great shape that might have looked like that at one particular time point on a certain day they're in great shape or from a certain angle all this type of stuff um and then even the lives people are living every there's no way to not make your life look better than it is on instagram because you will only post certain things that look interesting or when you're doing cool stuff that you're enjoying you'll put a photo up of it as a nice memory which is cool but to other people that is going to be giving a, a filtered view of what it is. Um, and so I don't want to go off on the tangent of a whole social media rant because uh, I'll, That's a whole I'll different uh, episode. get into trouble. But yeah, 100%. So with, with all those things in mind, I think trying to work out first, does this person actually need to be dieting? Um, a lot of the time I would probably say that the idea that they need to be just completely focused on restricting and under eating all the time is probably not the way to go, particularly for people who are young people who are a lot of the time, not even actually overweight. If you look at this from like a medical perspective, they just tell themselves they are right. They're, they're perfectly healthy. They're in uh, good shape, but they still tell themselves they need to lose five kilos because they're not lean enough. I think that particularly younger people need to move away from and try and encourage like what are, healthy eating behaviors, what are healthy activity behaviors. And if you do them consistently, you'll kind of be good. Um, that said, there are, of course, younger people who would benefit health-wise from 
losing body weight. Um, and I think it again comes back down to the same way you'd probably treat an adult as well of through talking to that person, kind of evaluating how they're coming at this from is something like tracking and weighing food and logging food actually going to be productive for them or is it going to be negative? Um, and there are some people that will respond fine to it and it'll be again just a useful tool at a particular time and there's others that you can probably can see that this may have the um, potential to lead to some uh, negative behaviors and or disordered eating patterns and uh, if that is suspected then i think yeah either have that conversation with someone or maybe if it's really advanced be able to reverse someone um but yeah i don't have an easy answer for that i don't have i don't think i've have a kind of set engagement for it but i think in most cases uh i would suspect that people who are let's say on uh, like teenagers then trying to first shape what healthy body image is first um, and having those conversations are probably more fruitful than uh, deciding, okay, what method of, of dieting do we need to use? Because in a lot of cases, I mean, uh, why you're trying to do that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my general thoughts. No, I, de I, I definitely agree with you there. The fact that there's so much on social media that can't do that does have an impact. Like you don't have to be a teenager. Like there's still people in their thirties that kind of get bogged down in body image and body dysmorphia on social media. So it's not only teenagers. I know if you, if I, so I did a massive social media audit at the turn of the year of who wasn't adding to myself or my, my kind of ideology or whatever. And that, I think that's cleared my head. So people need to kind of get away from, the certain ones with the big bums and all that kind of stuff. If that's what they're looking for, happy days. But it's not necessarily realistic. They could just have their their pants up a little bit higher. They could be at a certain angle, as you said, certain lighting, good days, bad days. And I think OH Fitness or Siobhan O'Hagan does that brilliantly. She puts everything on the plate. She takes the, and so does Ros Purcell. They take the, the, the photos when they're a little bit bloated and stuff like that. So they make it more realistic to females in particular. Um, so I think that I think that's great. Um, I've, um, I've I've said it to to Roz recently. I I think she's she's doing a just an outstanding job, and uh, it's awesome to see someone in her position do that. And I think it, it, it's it's refreshing to see. I think she's doing so much good, um, because like you said, there's just um the comparison that everyone is going to naturally make, and the probably if you're talking about like the way you've done with an order, I think. A lot of people could probably do with that and simply ask, uh, when I see certain posts that this person is putting out that I, that I follow, afterwards, do I feel good or do I feel bad? Yeah. If I'm feeling bad after looking at them, then why am I subscribed to this? It's not useful. It's not motivating me. Like, If something makes you feel bad and you kind of just know inside, maybe you don't even know why, If it just, it could be someone who's a perfectly nice person, but for whatever way, when you look at their post, it doesn't make you feel good, then just don't do it. And uh, that's that's one way, hopefully, around it too. Yeah, like you, you ultimately control the thoughts that go into your head. You ultimately control what's going in, whether it be a book or a newspaper article or Instagram, social media seems to be the way now. So you ultimately control what goes into your head and makes you how you make how it makes you feel. So if it doesn't make you warm and fluffy inside get rid of it that's the that's the it's worked for me it makes me feel so much better now that i got rid of it 
So that's that's my biggest advice for people out there. Um, intuitive eating, Danny, seems to be out there as well. Uh, can you, for anyone that's not aware of it, can you explain what it means and any tips that you may have for someone starting out on a diet? Sure. So I think this is one that actually got a lot more, um, been talked about a lot more recently, but also sometimes has some misconceptions about and gets miscategorized. So essentially, probably the best way to think about intuitive eating is in a, a few components. Uh, the first one that it tends to have is it actually gives um, unconditional permission to eat um, what foods you want at times that you want to have them. However, that is with the caveats that it is based on what they will term uh, kind of uh, physical reasons as opposed to emotional. And by that, it simply means eating in tune with your hunger and satiety. So there, it, it tries to essentially get away from having any associated guilt around food and being unnecessarily restrictive around food. And that, it actually is an intervention that comes rooted from a whole area called non-diet um, interventions and diet nutrition, which basically looks at how can we talk to people about nutrition behaviors without having actually any outcome goal based on body weight or changing um so it kind of reframes of what has happened with, with pretty much most advice particularly when people are casting on changing body composition even from a medical standpoint of how do we help someone who's overweight it's about giving goals for how much weight they need to lose and that is typically really unsuccessful when you look at the statistics of in the long term how many people actually succeed at not only losing that weight but keeping it off and so this kind of as um, kind of non-diet nutrition is talking about, well, how do we, instead of focusing on an outcome of weight, let's talk about what behaviors people can follow to be healthier. Um, and part of that is obviously with, with diet. And so intuitive eating gets someone to simply eat um, without thinking about wanting to eat a certain food or at a certain time, um, but will try and do so in uh, tune with when they are hungry and when they're actually satisfied or satiated and full. Um, and so that to some people um, can be misunderstood to say, oh, it just means eat whatever you want all the time. That's not necessarily the case because we know that is problematic. So it's, it's stuck with those internal cues. However, there's obviously some work that for that type of approach to be useful to someone. Um, and so again, if they have no good habits established that we've talked about if there's no good uh basic understanding around what's in foods or what types of foods we should be centered around then they, doing that is going to be quite difficult behaviors and and you want to go to an intuitive eating model it can actually be quite useful and i think in the long term particularly people who just want to let's say they've, they've got to a body composition they're healthy at and they want to maintain that long term that's kind of like what we should be aiming for of how do we be able to eat foods, banning certain foods, be able to eat whenever we're hungry and be able to know what's an appropriate amount to, to do and be able to base that on our own internal response as opposed to having to weigh and track everything. So that's probably the best way to frame intuitive eating. But as I said, there, when you would use that again is a question of here's a tool, 
when should we use it for who um and so that would determine whether it's going to be useful i think i think that's i think that's awesome um and like if someone is i know you're kind of alluded to it there about creating the habits about some like what would you say to someone that has a complete blank canvas has probably maybe say three four stone overweight has never been into a gym what would you say to that someone about starting out on a diet what would be obviously their habits and stuff like that what we've alluded to quite a lot but if someone was kind of coming to you with a blank canvas what would be the first thing that you would change with that person I like to make change around like food-based inter- interventions because everyone can understand when you're talking about food and it doesn't need that kind of educational learning curve of talking about grams of this or or weighing stuff, anything like that. Um, and so the first place is um, looking at, rather than saying, here's all these foods you need to cut out of your diet or here's this magic type of dietary prescription to follow. Instead, it's about, okay, what? Can we encourage people to eat? That if they were doing that, is probably going to put them in the right direction. And so, if we start having foods that are, or our meals throughout the day, that are based on a relatively high amount of protein, and let's say they're getting a relatively high amount of fiber, and they are including uh, vegetables and fruits that we we would promote, um, those things are essentially going to have most vegetables and most fruits are going to have a high volume of food for a low number of calories. So that kind of combination of promoting foods that have high protein, high fiber, and density, if we can show people examples of what those types of meals are and center around include more of these, then suddenly now you're going to increase someone's piety and how full they feel. They are able to eat a meal and feel full that has not too many calories, but actually has quite a large volume when they're looking out on their plate. And when people are able to eat more of those, then they're naturally their calorie intake is going to come down. And so particularly you'll probably see this if you start with um, someone who is used to eating a very low protein diet and it doesn't include much vegetables. And now you start to switch to higher protein foods and a bit more kind of vegetables. And suddenly they're saying like, they're finding it hard to eat the amount of food in these meals. So it's nothing to do with the amount of calories, it's, just, it's actually a large number of, uh, of food, uh, given that number of calories. And so I would start there with people, recommendation for here are things that we should include more of. And once they can start including those regularly, then after a while we can start talking about things we want to cut down on or changes elsewhere. But usually when you include more of those types of things, they're naturally going to replace something else. And so what those types of meals are would be a, a good start. Um, doing that, obviously, in combination with being regularly active. Like we know that for weight loss itself, exercise alone probably doesn't have that big of an influence if you're not doing anything with your nutrition. But for long term of uh, maintenance of weight loss, exercise seems to be super important, as well as people who are more active can actually tightly regulate their own uh, calorie intake. So that the kind of those hunger and satiety cues that we talked about earlier, we can naturally better regulate those if we are more active than for completely sedentary. Things can go awry, so it's hard to actually eat to satiety. Um, and notice when I'm full, if we're never actually being active, 
and so it has this extra benefit of having a regularly active lifestyle. So that would be a start uh, if that's specific enough, but if not, I can hopefully try and give more. No, I think I think the the biggest takeaway point I, I took from that was for someone who's completely has completely new to the gym, completely new to losing weight, or has never done it before, is rather than have this whole negative impact or negative mindset of having a restrictive diet why don't you have an inclusive diet of adding more veg more fruit more fiber into your diet so i think that's the biggest takeaway point from our chat today is having a more inclusive diet rather than having this all or nothing approach and having this massive restrictive diet actually just include more greens onto a plate more fruit onto a plate and you'll feel so much better so i I think that's my biggest takeaway point anyway so whoever's listening to this and and this resonates with them as much as it is with me. I think that's I think that's awesome, Danny. Thank you so much for that point. Um, one of the so the last question before the Q and A from the guys from Instagram is lack of sleep or sleep seems to be a huge topic at the minute. Everyone seems to be wearing the the, the glasses to block out the the light stuff like that. Uh, and most of us need a lot more. Most of us feel that if we are asleep, we're just we. That's that's us getting enough sleep. It's not high quality sleep. It's not deep sleep, all that kind of stuff. Can you kind of explain how much what impact sleep does have on your appetite if you aren't getting enough of it? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually posted recently uh, about one particular study, but there are many that kind of replicate this, where they um, essentially restricted sleep in this particular study for two nights. Um, so it made people sleep for four hours per night as opposed to their usual intake or their usual amount of sleep and then measured both their subjective feelings of hunger as well as objective markers in terms of hormones, uh, circulating hormones that relate to things like appetite and energy availability. And with those two nights of sleep restriction, you see about a 20% increase in this hormone called ghrelin, which we can think of as appetite hormone. Uh, about a 20 to 25% decrease in the hormone called leptin. Um, when leptin drops, it essentially signals to the body to search for more food and reduce your energy expenditure. So that combination of things is also mirrored in the um, subjective feelings that most people reported higher hunger levels. Uh, after those two nights of sleep restriction and they also seem to be particularly drawn towards um, highly refined processed foods so um, when we think of like cakes and donuts and sweets something like that something very hyper palatable and so we have this um, now this issue of if you are sleep restricted you can uh, without even realizing it be waking up each day the best intention for your diet but now have higher hunger levels your appetite is higher and maybe a decreased drive to expend energy and move around throughout the day so your calorie expenditure might be lowered and so if this is going on chronically now this is going to be problematic shooting ourselves in the foot so that's one way that poor sleep can essentially affect those decisions so that kind of gives us with two conclusions one is let's try and focus on better sleep habits get better quality sleep so this is not an issue but also then from the kind of practical behavior side is we know there are going to be times where we do have restricted sleep there's people listening that probably have kids at home or work night shift uh, at their work or are to be for whatever reason have a poor night's sleep sometime realizing that 
on the days after that, and your sleep has been restricted, you, you're going to have some of these things where you're going to be more prone to overeating. So number one, just be more aware of it. Maybe two, this is where you have some of those behaviors to fall back on. Maybe you have some like pre-prepared meals. Maybe you uh, catch yourself on, okay, I'm not going to go and have that food because maybe I'm just feeling a bit more hungry. Or maybe you force yourself to go and get a 10-minute walk because you know you're less inclined to move around that day. Just being that aware of it. So the that kind of study and, and many others have kind of replicated. We do see these changing certain hormones and feelings of hunger with sleep restriction. I, I think that's I think that's awesome. The fact that didn't you mentioned the the main hormones that are affected and stuff like that and just creating those little habits that if you are even with the best intentions, you are human at the end of the day. Um and just kind of creating those little habits that if you are feeling a little bit more hungry, don't kind of just necessarily go on off on a binge but kind of the, the incorporating the walk is a, is, a key, is, a, is a great one just even getting there for 10 minutes one of the things that I say to my clients that if they are feeling if they have been on a night out or whatever and they're rather than and they have had one of those massive nights out or they're looking for the salty foods the next day rather than ordering a takeaway won't they just get up and go and pick it up themselves and you'll find that nine times out of ten, they don't go and get it. They actually have their meals prepped from the day before and they'll go and eat that because when you're hungover, you literally want to just veg on the couch. You don't want to do anything. So the the fact that you don't want to get up and get off the couch is, is just proves proves the point that we're we're quite we're, people are quite lazy and, and I'm put, I'm including myself in that sometimes you just need one of those kind of days where you're sitting on a couch. Um so the QA that has come in from Instagram. Uh, quite varied different topics. So have you got any tips for dealing with cravings on my menstrual cycle is one of the questions that came in. Not particularly in that it's, you're going to see changes across the anyway. And I don't think a thing that you can do in terms of like, I'll eat this certain food to reduce my craving. I think it's more, again, going back to what we had before of, building in processes uh, that allow you to deal with those things that way. Um, so whether it's having certain like, go-to snacks, you know, are going to be keep you on track. They're going to be low-calorie, high-protein snacks, but you will still satisfy you in some way. Um, or just being able to um, yeah, build in some habits that's going to, prevent you wanting to do something or you can even um what i would say is if you really do crave something they're probably restricted so at a certain day like you just for whatever reason like really fancy some ice cream then as we've talked about with some of the intuitive eating or non-dining approaches go and have that right you can have some ice cream the idea of understanding these big principles around nutrition um, around overall energy balance and how that works over um, on average what you're doing for most of the time you can account for that right you can decide to have that ice cream instead of something you might usually have and because it's a one-off it's not going to make a big deal you can account for those extra calories maybe you reduce, reduce the portion size of your, your dinner or maybe the next day you decide to have a, a different meal change there's loads of ways to fit in those foods so probably there's no need to completely restrict and deprive yourself um, and just do it with some awareness of the portions, right? Rather than say, well, I want some ice cream, so I'll just go eat a full tub of Ben and Jerry's. 
maybe you say, okay, oh, I would love some ice cream, so I'm going to go out and get a couple somewhere, really enjoy that, and then that will take care of that craving for the moment. So I would say probably no need to completely restrict yourself from it and use the tools we've talked about of being aware and uh, building in portion size and allowing yourself to do that to uh, make sure that you then aren't craving that. That's awesome. Um, I know one of the things, one of the questions that came through is something I've struggled with previously is IBS. Have you got any advice on how to deal with the issue at the moment? So for IBS, there, it, this is kind of dependent on what is the trigger. Those, but from a perspective, um, again, they can probably if they just want to, if their symptoms aren't like too crazy where there's something really badly going on um then some of the kind of evidence-based types of interventions that may work so they can test one would be trialing a low fodmap diet um so people can look uh, into that if they wish it's essentially um fodmaps of carbohydrates that can be hard for people to digest they're they're, they're from fermentable in your intestine and so for some people can cause some uh, gas and bloating um, and some kind of GI distress and so going on a low period of time and seeing if that can alleviate your symptoms uh, for a lot of people that seems to uh, be productive and then from there they can start to reintroduce some of those foods and see which ones they tolerate which ones they don't and you can kind of see that after um uh, you'll probably be able to reintroduce the vast majority of foods and still be perfectly fine. That initial reduction of those FODMAP foods uh, can reduce symptoms and allow you to get over that a bit. Um, if they're very severe, again, depending on what is actually driving the issue, sometimes counterintuitively decreasing fiber intake may be useful. So if you have really bad GI distress, damage to the gut, then having less fiber. Uh, uh, can be useful for a f- for a few days, alleviate some of the symptoms, but it's only in certain cases. Um, so I would say the first place to go is if it is something that's being driven by a uh, diet, would be maybe low fiber diet. See if you alleviate symptoms, you can reintroduce stuff then from there. Um, and that's the same way you could do for just an elimination diet in general. If people were going down that route, is basically you're eliminating foods that you're most likely to have issues with. After a while, once you have some, you're, you're kind of symptom free, you start reintroducing foods one by one um, and seeing how you deal with them. And then you kind of pinpoint which ones you're having an issue with. So uh, that's where I'd probably start if people want to try that for themselves without outside intervention. Perfect. That's awesome. Um, there's so many diets out there at the minute. One of the questions that came in, what was the worst diet you've heard of in the media recently? There's so um, many. There's a uh, probably the one I'll mention, and, and I don't want to say that it's worse for everyone because there's obviously anecdotally some people yeah. do well on it. But uh, there's a lot of talk about the carnivore diet right now. The there the, the cases that are you can probably see maybe is people are saying that they have an autoimmune condition and that this has helped them or they've had really bad issues with, with their gut and that carnivore diet has helped them. And I think essentially what is going on in, in some of those cases is you think what a carnivore diet is, it's the most extreme form of an elimination diet we can have. 
it's taking out all plants. So anything you may have a problem with is going to be coming out. So that includes, like we just said, those low FODMAP or those uh, high FODMAP foods are gone. Uh, fiber is gone. Uh, anything that ingrains that some people may react to. Um, most kind of things like dairy and other things are gone. So it's essentially maybe reducing things that some people have a problem with and then they feel better. Um, and I think especially things get a bit odd with certain autoimmune conditions that we need a lot we need to work out. But I just think that um, what's going on when they're seeing improvements there is just, it's eliminating a certain type of food and it's not necessarily the eating of meat that's being beneficial. As I've said on a recent podcast, they could they could call it the, the salmon diet and only eat salmon and they'd, they'd see the same kind of benefits. Um, but beyond that, the amount of people that are trialing it just because they're trying to uh, save themselves that this is some sort of healthy diet and that they just want to do it. People are doing it to lose weight or because someone said you can be perfectly fine on this. I think it's just trying to rationalize food choices they want to make because they're probably drawn to extreme types of diets. They most likely like eating meat and they probably don't like eating vegetables. But I think pretty much the vast majority of what we know about nutrition clearly would indicate for pretty much everyone this is a, a very, very suboptimal way to go. You are not only eliminating most of the foods that are probably best for human health and the fact that probably most of us should be eating not all, but probably a, a large majority of our food should be kind of and then even from a sustainability and kind of ethical point, we can get into that as well. But I think, yeah, that that's the one that's um, for most of the people that are doing it because they think it's cool or whatever. It's it's just idiotic. Um, yeah, I'll say the current one Okay, and then the last question would be, I think we may have tipped on it earlier. If there was one thing you would change in the industry, what would it be and why? Oh man, that's tough. Um, I don't know if there's any kind of regulation I could change or anything. I, I would, I would just like to see it in how people th that are uh, putting themselves out there as experts or whatever, or passing on information, um, did it with a li little more awareness of what we kind of don't know and a bit of I suppose humility and not feeling like they need to know all the answers and I think that can sometimes be people feel pressure especially when they get to a certain place that people are coming to them for answers and have questions and look up to them they feel they need to know the answer to everything and none of us can know the answer to everything and there's something I think powerful and actually endearing about someone you can find who knows lots of useful stuff but also quite regularly says i don't know and uh it's one of the things i'm most happy enough to do if someone asks me something i don't know like, i don't know or i can try and find out or this person might know or um here's some other areas to look at and i, I think just that degree of kind of honesty is is something that would serve much more people well because where poor information ends up getting promoted is when someone doesn't really know the answer to something 
tries to tell someone a solution to something. Um, sometimes that's on purpose, sometimes it's not, but I, I think that would be one thing I would, I would try and get people to realize. Number one, if, if you're in that position, you don't need to know all this all the time. And then if you're looking to uh, looking around for information, if you find someone who speaks in very absolutist terms and they seem to know everything, and uh, if their viewpoint seems very dogmatic and extreme, it's probably a red flag that it's not great to follow. So maybe I, that. I think that's a great answer because no one knows it all. Like the likes of like Eric Helms, yourself, Martin McDonald, they're all you're, you guys are always learning. And as you said, if you don't know something, don't be afraid to ask. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people do struggle with is the the kind of the whole thing of actually asking someone else because it's kind of maybe seen as a sign of weakness. But I would actually probably go out and say, if you're not sure of something, and that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm loving doing the podcast is I'm getting the opportunity to speak to to yourselves and other people. And I'm, I never thought it as a learning tool. I always just thought about it getting a, a voice out there or whatever. But I, the, the amount of information I've learned off Rebecca Nolan or Teach Triceps, I've had yourself on, I've had Brian Keane on, Paul Germany, Brian O'Hawk and stuff. So, like, it's, I've been very lucky with the amount of people I've had on so early. So, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Danny. I know we're on a complete different time zones. Um, for any for people who are interested in finding you online, social media, website, all that types of stuff, where is the best place to find you and to track you down? Sure. So uh, if they want to listen to the podcast, they can find that on any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, everything like that. Uh, just search for Sigma Nutrition Radio. Um, everything else is pretty much up on the website, just sigmanutrition.com. That gives all our uh, podcast show notes articles coaching resources all that stuff is up there and then me they can find me pretty easy i think on uh, social media um instagram handle is just danny lennon underscore sigma and uh, twitter is nutrition danny and then on facebook they can find the sigma nutrition page or my personal account is probably fine there just pop in my name and uh yeah that's pretty much it i should be easy to find on any of those places happy to take any questions and um yeah thanks for uh talking to me and having me on no problem thank you thank you so much for coming i've learned an awful lot and i hope the guys have listened to and have learned an awful lot as well there's definitely stuff for a few for thought i'm going to uh there's a few i think the few of the guys that i work with were quite excited that i had was having you on so i think those guys will be looking for a preview um so i appreciate coming on danny and thank you so much and i'll chat to you soon